0: This ABA Journal podcast is brought to you by Westlaw Next, the legal research platform chosen by over 40,000 legal organizations for the tradition of editorial excellence combined with the most advanced technology. Learn more at westlawnext.com. It's often hard enough to support yourself in a sole practice or a small firm. So the idea of hiring another lawyer, even if it means that person gets making more money, can be terrifying for some. Today at the ABA Journal, we'll be discussing the hows and wins of when the time is right for small firm and solo practitioners to hire a new lawyer. I'm Stephanie Francis-Ward, and joining me today are Selwyn Gerber, a CPA based in Beverly Hills, California, Laura Mann, a New Jersey solo practitioner, and Edward Pohl, a Venice, California coach, certified management consultant, author, and speaker on law practice management. His work can be found at LawBizBlog. He's the author of Growing Your Law Practice in Tough Times. He's based in Venice, California. Ed, let's start with you first. Can you give me some scenarios about when the time is right for a solo or a small firm to bring in more lawyers, either on a full-time or contract basis?
1: Well, I start with a basic philosophy that lawyers should be doing two things and only two things. They should be marketing for new business, and they should be doing the lawyering Because only they are licensed by the state to do so. So if they are doing the lawyering and the marketing, it's kind of tough sometimes to do everything at one time. Obviously, you've got to do the marketing because you are the only one who can decide whether you want to represent that particular client and whether you're competent to handle that particular matter. Once you get the client, you then have to do the work. And it's a continuing cycle and at some point, hopefully, you become too busy. So that's one scenario where you want to hire somebody else, to somebody who can come in and do the work for you while you continue to do the marketing to bring in more work. Another scenario would be when you can't keep up with the work that you've got. The third scenario may be when you want to avoid mundane work, you want to get more sophisticated work. And there yet has to be mundane tasks like contract review and so forth that has to be done in any given matter. So you can bring in less experienced lawyers, for example, to do that kind of work while you stay at the higher level, do the more strategic work and so forth, or that you can do the work that requires greater skill. For example, being in the courtroom. Being in the courtroom is a lot more um, technically required, a lot, a lot more greater skills required than doing contract review, in my opinion, anyway. Another scenario when you want to expand into a new practice area or into a new geographic area. These are scenarios that, at least off the top of my head, are times when you want to bring in a new lawyer.
0: I want to pick up on something you said. About law firm, or excuse me, about lawyers doing the business development and marketing. What if you're a solo and you hate doing business development and marketing? Is it ever, does it ever make sense to bring in a lawyer who maybe is better at that than you?
1: Well, the answer is yes, but <laughs> there's always the but. Um, <laughs> you are the product, and you really cannot quote hate marketing unquote and be successful. Unless you're in a larger firm that merely feeds you the business and you become so skilled in a technical area, for example, uh, you become so skilled in tax work or you become so skilled in, uh, in patent filing or what have you, and there are others that continue to feed you the work. But I've seen too many examples um, where the lawyer who does not do the marketing is the lawyer who is on the short end when the firm breaks up. Yeah, yeah.
0: All right. Um, And Laura, you're a sole practitioner. Can you tell us a bit? Now, my understanding is is you haven't hired someone full-time, but you bring in contract lawyers sometimes. Is that correct?
2: That is correct.
0: Okay. Tell me how you decided to do that and what went into your decision.
2: Well, um, I think a lot of it, was the timing and the circumstances, uh, most of which that Ed had mentioned, where the, um, I, I'm slowly building my practice. I've been an attorney for a number of years, but I just started my own practice about four and a half years ago in an area geographically that I was new, relatively new to. So I was really starting from scratch and building my own practice. And uh, so I started out as, as what they call a true solo. I didn't have any staff. It was just me, and I had to wear all the hats. And, you know, as the bit practice grew, thankfully it, it did and has and continues to do so, um, when it got to the point where I felt that I could be earning more money if I had somebody helping me in doing some of the work that I either don't like to do or don't have time to do, then I could hire them to do some of the work and pay them on a contract basis and then bill them out to my client for the fees, you know, as set forth in my representation agreement and then it was a win-win. I was able to give somebody some work, get some more done, and make a profit on top of that. Okay. I wasn't to the point where I could afford, frankly, both financially or in terms of have enough work, to hire a full-time or even a part-time employee, but I did have the need for additional staff. So, can
0: you give me an idea if, if a lawyer client came to you, he said, you know, I am thinking about bringing on more lawyers. What do you think in terms of what my numbers are? Can you give me an idea generally about what sort of advice you give someone who's thinking about bringing in more lawyers to the practice?
3: Sure. Look, first of all, we've got to get to the philosophy. In certain cases, you basically trail your growth. In other words, you hire retroactively. You hire when the businesses come in. And if you have the capability or the uh, internal fortitude, you hire in advance of work that you hope will come in, and you take a chance. So that is the key. If you're conservative, you're going to be basically behind the eight ball. You're always going to be hiring uh, for work you already have in, which creates additional pressure, obviously, for the solo practitioner, but at least relieves some financial pressure. Uh, it creates work pressure to substitute, though. Um, so that's the first thing, uh, is are you going to be a uh, somebody who's behind the eight ball, who's going to hire when the work comes in, or in advance? Uh, the second point is... Um, you know, what is the point of a hire? Is it going to be somebody who's uh, a part-time, somebody who's you know f- flexible or variable cost uh, that you uh, pay as you go, or is it someone where you're going to be committing to some serious upfront dollars? And what kind of reserves do you have? Um, it also has to do with the kind of positioning you have in the marketplace. And as for somebody who's a business getter who can get out and, and get business and is confident, uh, it makes sense to go out and do it. Uh, for somebody who's more conservative and someone who's not a business getter, you know they divide lawyers into what they call minders and grinders and finders. Uh, if, you're, you know, if you're not a finder, it's going to be pretty hard to go out there and go out on a limb with some new hire. So there's a lot of factors that get uh, taken into account. We generally advise caution. Uh, that's our general position. Mm-hmm. And uh, so everything that that means to the lawyer is what, you know, what they have to do.
0: So it sounds like, I mean, say a lawyer gets paid, uh, you know, a decent-sized judgment or settlement or has a huge job. Take some of that money, reinvest it perhaps, and maybe hire someone part-time or on a contract basis so you have them and they're ready to go when the work comes?
3: Um, depending on what your position is in the marketplace, I mean, as, mm-hmm. as was alluded to earlier in the conversation here, um, if you've, you know, if you're a, a lawyer who has the, the, the founding lawyer of the firm, who has the ability to go out and, and be a business getter, then you know it's not so risky to, uh, you know, to lay out some bucks and uh, you know get the talent ready so that when the work comes in, uh, you can handle it uh, properly. Uh, but. I, my experience generally and experience of our firm is people tend to be more cautious than that and I don't fault them at all especially in these times so uh, sometimes you'll uh, particularly with a, with a surplus of lawyers around uh, sometimes the conservative thing is go out and get the business first and then scramble to get it done and that's factually I think what happens most of the time
2: Steph, I
1: have- one of the things mm-hmm. that you said uh, triggers something that I need to address if you don't mind Please um, you said a lawyer gets a big judgment or settlement and takes some of that money and reinvest it in the firm. One of the things that I find in my experience, and this is particularly true or even true, perhaps is better said, in the larger firms where you, um, you you get your compensation based on the standard of living to which you want to become accustomed rather than hold your standard of living to a reasonable slash moderate pace and keep money in reserve for the growth that you're talking about and for contingencies that none of us can anticipate but always occur. Mm -hmm. My experience is that lawyers tend to spend more lavishly on themselves than they really ought to. And that's why they get into trouble. Oftentimes, when times like these become tough.
0: Yeah, and um, I want to go back to something uh, someone mentioned with the surplus of lawyers. I'm curious if you, and this is for all, a question for all of you, if you want to bring in a, a young lawyer, uh, maybe who hasn't been hired by anyone yet, to do jobs that suit his or her skills, can you give me a sense of about what you can pay them in this market?
3: I would defer. I mean, I've seen ridiculously low offers, so I, I you yeah, know, because I think there's such a surplus of lawyers in today's yeah. marketplace that there's almost no flaw. It would have to do also with potential and so on, but I think you could hire a lawyer for very little money today. Okay. But I, what, I, will, I, will defer, I will defer to Ed.
1: What's your experience? Go ahead. In In this marketplace, the statistics by the National Association of Law Placement and others indicate that the starting salaries for first-year um, lawyers has gone down by uh, 35% or more so that we're no longer talking about uh, six-digit numbers to start a law career. And forget about that number for the moment because that is in your, well, you know, the big law firms. In other firms, you can hire Really experienced, very capable lawyers for something less than a hundred thousand dollars.
0: And Laura, what's your experience? I, I'm I'm curious about like what we're talking salaries here, but what about project wise? I'm also curious if this is something that solos are comfortable with because you know there is a bit of a risk taking on someone that hasn't practiced before.
2: There is a a huge risk, and I think that risk is not only financial, but it's also professional because once you hire somebody new, especially as a solo practitioner, your clients, there's a really strong relationship there. And when you're hiring somebody who you don't really know very well, despite how thorough you may be in the interview process, you're uh, exposing your clients you have this relationship with to this person, and, and who knows what could happen. In terms of actual salaries, I haven't hired a full-time or even a part-time staff attorney myself yet, an associate. Um, but I've heard a lot of discussion about it, and I think it's very, very dramatically depending on your geographic area, of course.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, and I'm in sort of in the Northeast, so on the periphery of it, uh, in the New York City area. Um, and salaries are higher, but they, they have gone down dramatically. I've heard of lawyers. Being offered and even taking jobs as as little as twenty and thirty forty thousand a year, which is unheard of, you know unheard of mm-hmm. in, in days of yore, but um, I think the uh, even the average starting salary has gone down a lot. And again, it also differs depending on whether it's a solo hiring uh, an attorney or whether it's a medium or larger firm hiring a new attorney.
0: Well, and we know that about about salaries, but I'm curious, what does that mean for someone like you that uses lawyers on a contract basis?
2: Well, I think the contract rates have also come down some, yeah. and it depends, of course, on experience level and um, geographic area what the going rate is, but they have come down, come down some, and it makes it more a more viable option for me to use contract lawyers uh, on on a case-by-case basis or even a regular basis, and then there's no... Commitment on either side. You know, I work with attorneys who I hire on a contract basis who have their own practices and want to supplement their incomes. Or it's also a way for me to kind of try somebody out and mm-hmm. for them to try me out. How well do we work together? Does my caseload justify hiring this person? So it's almost a, uh, for me a way to try somebody out to see if I think they would be a good fit for my firm because as a solo if I hire another attorney we're working very closely together and our personalities and working styles need to mesh
0: well and I think that brings up something really important and I'll give this to Ed first what do you advise clients on finding the right fit when they are hiring someone else to work with them at a sole practice or a, a small firm when I say hire it, I mean you do contract work as well
1: well you've hit i think at least for me on um, the most difficult challenge of this entire discussion, and that is how to buy the services of an individual because you're not you know you're not looking at an automobile where you can hit the tires or you're looking at a washing machine where you can go to a consumer's report and get some evaluation on pros and cons and comparative uh, comparison with other brands and models you're looking at an individual you're looking at an individual who has his or her own uh, mental capabilities and creativity and so forth, and so you 've got that one that set of parameters and assuming for the moment that you could make an evaluation and I think Laura puts it right when she says, no matter how thorough you are in the in the screening process it doesn't mean that you're going to be successful because now you've got the interpersonal workings between the people. And I think that one of the things that I say is do the best you can in terms of the evaluation. You know, look at writing samples depending on what the work product is that you want. Um, If it's a written product, obviously look at writing samples. If it's uh, litigation support, uh, talk to previous employers, maybe even some clients of that person if you can. And do the best you can in the, in the uh, evaluation process, you know, due diligence, as they say in the legal terminology. But then when all that's said and done and you've made an offer, you've made an offer that's within your budget, and it's an offer that has maybe some upside for the individual so that there's some reason for them to focus Uh, very intently on the project involved, uh, have a short leash. By that I mean you have a 30-, 60-, 90-day evaluation process and see what their work product is on the job training, so to speak. And if it passes muster, great. And if it doesn't, cut your losses and move on.
3: You know, they say at the business schools now, be very uh, slow to hire and very quick to fire. And so I think that echoes what we just heard. I think the key is do you want someone who's an echo chamber and who thinks and does exactly the same as you or somebody who's complementary? Most people naturally gravitate to people who are exactly like them. The truth is those are not the most powerful teams. The most powerful teams are complementary, but you've got to be able to handle somebody who thinks differently from you. But that's where the real greatness in good law firms comes about is people who complement each other, not people who echo each other, but you've got to be big to handle it.
1: Yeah, I would, I would, you know, concur on that, uh, completely. And the other thing that I have to say is, in my own experience of 25 years of practicing law before becoming a, a consultant full-time, is that I've seen good lawyers lose cases, and I've seen what I thought were bad lawyers win cases. So ultimately, we're looking at results, and that's all part of the evaluation process.
0: Well, I'm also curious, I mean, we talk about how to make sure this person is right for you. If you've been working by yourself for a while, it's probably hard to get used to having someone else around, even if, I mean, maybe it's for the best. Do you, all of you, do you have advice on maybe there's some things a lawyer can do who's had this old practice and they've done their own thing every day for years. Now they're bringing in people they have to work with. What kind of advice would you have for them?
1: Consult a marriage counselor. <laughs>
2: What do you think, Laura? Uh, not a bad idea. Um, I think it takes patience, <laughs> and it's going to take, um, or it does take, a lot of tolerance. Um, we do get set in our ways very easily, and we like things done the way we like them done. And um, so I would encourage people to just really be tolerant and know that you know maybe you could have done it better yourself but you won't be profitable or have peace of mind and, and have a life back if you do do it all yourself. So if every eye isn't dotted exactly the way you would do it, uh, that that is okay.
0: Okay. Ed, do you have any thoughts on what are some pretty common defining moments when a sole practitioner knows he or she needs to bring in another lawyer to help with the work?
1: Oh, that's a tough question, but I think that ultimately it's when you go to sleep at night and you continue to think about the matters you handled the day before, you're fearful about what's going to happen the day after because you can't be at five places at one time. And the real fear is that you may have missed a deadline or in the future may miss a deadline. You know, if you're in that kind of environment, man, that's the time quickly to get somebody else to help you. One of the things that we have in today's world that makes our life better and different is that we have technology to help us do some of the things. And we we can have the machine, the the software programs uh, help us delay that time when we need to hire somebody else. But I think fear is a great motivator on the one hand. And seeing an opportunity, on the other hand, are times when you want to go hire somebody. Now, do you want to hire somebody full-time or not? Laura talked about that a moment ago. Uh, You know, my own advice is try a contract lawyer first and see how it goes. See whether that relieves the pressure. If it does, just stay with the contract lawyer until you get more opportunity and more confidence and you, you, you get to the point that Selwyn was talking about where you're now hiring for the future and you're comfortable with that.
0: And Selwyn, could you give us a sense generally with someone with a healthy law practice and they decide to bring someone on, can you give us a sense perhaps in percentages of how that can increase their profit?
3: Too hard, too specific. I have just be uh, making up numbers, frankly. I don't. Uh, I, I I couldn't do that. I'm sorry. That's okay. Yeah. Um, no, it, it, there are just so many factors. So many factors. Um, so no, I I I really think it's all you know. It all depends on the specific. As I say, the devil is in the details. And we can talk about concepts over here. But at the end of the day, it's about the nature of the lawyer, uh, the kind of practice he has, the business he has that is undone that needs to be done, the pipeline or the anticipated pipeline, and then the type of person that he's looking at in terms of, as I said, complementary, which is the whole key as far as I'm concerned, as far as our firm is concerned, to building powerful practices is complementary rather than simply duplicative.
0: And I'm curious, this is a question for all of you, have you seen situations where the only thing that was stopping that the lawyer from bringing in more profits to his or her firm was this fear of bringing on another lawyer, either contract, part-time, full-time, whatever. Have you have you seen that much in your in life? Well, Ed, I mean, do you want to take that first?
1: Okay. Yeah, I have. I mean, that's one of the things I, I consult my clients about is they reach a point where they are successful and they're not sure where to go from there. And I remember one case in particular where the lawyer uh, in Georgia uh, didn't know whether he should take on more space, though it was being offered to him that was adjacent to where he is. And I said, uh, grab it, because you won't have the opportunity. If need be, you can sublet it to somebody else. But before we had the lease done, we talked about increasing the number of uh, lawyers in his firm And he took the gamble, and it paid off. His life was much easier, much more simple, and much more profitable. He could then focus more on the marketing, bring in more new business yet, and now he's got folks in in the back room, so to speak, to make sure that the work is done properly. So I think that's a very real uh, scenario.
0: Okay. And, Laura, can you tell me, when you first started uh, bringing on uh, contract lawyers, what surprised you the most, do you think?
2: What surprised me? I'm not sure that. Had any surprises? I was pleasantly surprised, I guess, by how easy it was <laughs> to let the work go, and um, and how uh, it, it took a while because I wanted to make sure that anyone I brought in um, in any capacity was the right fit for me. And of course, it's always a gamble. But um, but I was pleasantly surprised by the work that got done and how much relief I felt. The stress. That that was lifted off my shoulders, uh, not knowing that I had to do it all, or not knowing that it would get done even if I wasn't doing it and didn't have time to do it, was was immense.
0: Okay. All right. Well, I think that's everything I have for everyone today. Did anyone want to add anything else?
3: No. I uh, I you know I think the principles were well laid out, and uh, those who listen to the podcast should uh, you know see which aspects are applicable and call any of us, and we'd be happy to help. them.
1: Okay. The thing Um, that I would say is that this is a, a great time for growth. There is dramatic change in the horizon, and great opportunities arise when there is change, and you've just got to keep your eyes open. And I think the hardest thing for all of us, myself included, is to put fear aside and move forward with open eyes. But there's great opportunity there.
3: I will tell you what I'm seeing, and we, we didn't really discuss this, but before the the, the the program ends, I would just want to mention it. I'm seeing the creation of what what I think of as virtual law firms, where solo practitioners kind of team up, either with complementary skills or uh, or uh, competitive skills in a way, and, and create a virtual firm so that they have resources together on tap, and without incurring the uh, overhead structure and the, the you know the the entire overhead cost. Uh, as well as well as the hassles of a larger firm, and they have all the benefits of a multi-specialty virtual firm. That is something that I've seen over the last year or two that I had never seen before. Hmm. Uh, and I, I think, think it's a great people, option for the solos.
2: There's a lot of that going on, and, and to kind of piggyback onto that, the last thing I'd like to add is just um, fear, fear is huge when you're trying to make a living and, and doing it on your own, and, um, and a way to compensate for that fear and still move forward is being creative, and I would encourage anyone who's listening to this to think outside the box. This is a time of a lot of change right now, and it is a time of opportunity as well. And if you can get creative in terms of how to expand your practice without necessarily committing in the traditional ways that may not be feasible right now, then the um, possibilities are endless.
1: All right, and and thank you all. If I can put in mm-hmm. a plug that's particularly applicable for the solo practitioner. One of the things that all of us, I think, benefit from is having somebody to talk to. So we don't have this conversation in the largest canyon in the world, what I call the largest canyon in the world, that area between our two earlobes. If we can find somebody um, to talk to on a regular basis and throw our ideas out there and have them tested whether it be the accountant as Selwyn is or the coach as I am or somebody else, but a professional who is not there just episodically but who's there on a regular basis for you. You can test your ideas. You don't have to be there alone, in the, in, isolated in space. And that's when you're more secure and, I think, more comfortable taking chances that you might not, not otherwise. Okay. But I think the coaching concept is alive and well and has benefited many people in many industries, and lawyers are now beginning to understand that it can help them as well. Okay. well, Thank you guys
0: so much for your time. I appreciate it. This ABA Journal podcast is brought to you by Westlaw Next. Conduct legal research from any device, anytime, anywhere, even offline with the award-winning Westlaw Next iPad app. Learn more at westlawnext.com.